Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. You're listening to the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast, Episode 26. Doug Allen is a freelance wildlife and documentary cameraman who films both topside and underwater. Born in 1951 in Scotland, he graduated with an honours degree in marine biology from Stirling University in 1973. On completion of his degree, he decided that science at the sharp end wasn't quite what he sought to be. Underwater Anywhere became the drive for the next three years, and he worked on a wide range of diving jobs. He searched and found freshwater pearls in the rivers of Scotland. Commercial diving in Germany involved underwater video work and rebuilding canals. Twice he assisted with research on marine biological expeditions with Cambridge University in the Red Sea. And in the summer of 1975, he ran the Bouley Bay Underwater Centre in Jersey in the Channel Islands. But his big break was in 1976, when he first went to the Antarctic to work as a research diver on the British Arctic Survey Station on Signy Island in the South Orkneys. The job entailed helping the scientists to carry out their underwater studies from boats in the summer and beneath the ice in the winter. It was the start of an affair with ice that lasts to this day. Over the next 10 years until 1985, Doug and the British Antarctic Survey had a great relationship. He spent four winters and nine summers down south in that time and was awarded the Polar Medal for his work. He did three winters at Sydney as a diver and one at Haley Station down at 75 degrees south as base commander. Haley was no place for a biologist but it offered a chance to winter with emperor penguins and a first opportunity for Doug to use a movie camera rather than just stills. The BBC took first option on buying that footage for their forthcoming series Birds of All Seasons and Doug's career took a new direction. Using his experience of ice diving and intimate knowledge of Sydney through its winters, he proposed two films to survival Anglia, then in 1987 spent 10 months in the Antarctic making them. Since then, he has returned frequently to both poles, with a string of high-profile award-winning films and series for major TV networks worldwide. In contributing to the programs The Blue Planet, Planet Earth, Life, Human Planet, Frozen Planet, Expedition Iceberg, Forces of Nature, Hostile Planet, and many other programs, he has made over 100 filming trips, including filming orcas attacking grey whales off the coast of California, polar bears trying to capture belugas in a frozen hole in Arctic Canada, and killer whales washing seals off ice floes in Antarctica, all on-screen firsts. Hi, Doug. Thanks so much for joining me on the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast. How are you today from England? Um, very well, thank you, Jake. And it's a pleasure to be with you. 
Um, yes, it's just great. I love that. It's great to talk to people like you. Awesome. Well, well, thank you. Hey, it's a complete pleasure <laughs> to have you on the show because um, I have to say you are you are the person other than David Attenborough. You are you are honestly the 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 first camera person's name that I knew growing uh-huh. up. Now, I mean, when I say growing up, I was probably around... You're very old. <laughs> I don't mean to do that, but I was probably around 13 or 14, I think, when um, huh? it would have been The Living Planet, I would believe, that came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. 80s, mid-80s, 84, 85, something like that. Well, and there's a story to do with that later on. Okay, all right. Well, you were, you know, I was so fascinated. I grew up watching uh, Living Planet, The Trials of Life, David Attenborough's wildlife specials, and you were always in those shows. You know, you were you were filming an episode in them. Typically, uh, you do you know topside um, polar uh, underwater stuff. Um, you know, and I always saw your name came up, and it, and it fascinated me that what a life of a camera person would be like. And now here we are today, and I'm getting to chat to you and find out exactly what it's like. So, um, as always, this podcast is about trying to inspire uh, aspiring filmmakers. And, uh, and so I want to start really right at the beginning and ask you, you know, what was your journey? How did you get into wildlife filmmaking? Well, you mentioned Living Planet a little while ago, and that comes into my story. But basically, Jake, I would say to, it doesn't just apply to wildlife filmmakers. It applies to anyone in life. It's just keep following what interests you, and then you'll always keep life interesting. So actually... The filming came very last on my interest list. My interest started with with an interest in underwater adventure when as a little boy I read Jacques Cousteau's Silent World. And then I started snorkeling while I was still at school. We were lucky enough to go on holidays to the Mediterranean. And that led me naturally at the end of school on to learning to dive with a, with a bottle, with a scuba. And also it took me to a degree in marine biology. Now, while I did my degree, I was fascinated by two things. First of all, how few scientists, now we're talking about a long time ago, we're talking about 1969 now, but how few marine scientists actually dived. You know, most of them are still based on the, on the surface. Um, and so I continued my interest in diving, but I kind of lost my interest in becoming a scientist. So when I graduated, I decided that I would try to find biologically inclined adventures where I could use my skills as a diver to get results for scientists, so to speak. So I went on a couple of um, expeditions to the Red Sea with some biologists from Cambridge. I ran a dive school in Jersey. I uh, worked a little bit as a commercial diver in the canals in Germany. All sort of just main thing was was diving, and it was nice if you mixed it with biology. And then I got a job in the Antarctic, working as a research diver and supporting the marine biologists on this base called Signy, working for the British Antarctic Survey. So that was an 18-month contract down south. And I was a little bit into stills photography at that point, but not really. But when I went down south, that was when the bug really bit me. So I came back from one contract and went down less than a year later to do another contract but in the meantime I had gone and worked as a commercial diver and then had all and earned enough money basically to go down with a couple of Nikon F2s and an underwater housing and I did produce some nice underwater stuff we used to process 
our own films on base. And I think I learned fairly quickly. And then at the very end of that second contract for The Living Planet, who should come on to base for The Living Planet? But David Attenborough and a film crew for a couple of days. And they came on, they wanted to film some pieces to camera. And it fell to me to, first of all, my dive store was quite a big room on base. So I said to the camera person, oh, just spread yourself out in here. And then I went with them, just partly to look after them. But also, we drove the boat to different places, what have you. Anyway, for 48 hours, I was with them. And with them in the evenings when we're on a drink around the bar. And I just thought, this is such a good life that they're having. You know, they're traveling the world, they're doing exciting things. It felt quite glamorous, to be honest. But the main thing was that, you know, by this time I had spent three winters in the Antarctic in quite small groups of people. And I knew how well things went when you were part of a smallish team. And here was this four-person team going around the world and basically having a really good time, enjoying each other's company and all the rest. So I remember talking to, to David and Ned. Ned was the producer one evening in the bar, and I started talking about how you got into the business and things like that. And they were very good. They explained everything to me, the freelance nature. But I do remember, I think it was Ned said to me one night, he said, what you've got, Doug, is an intimate knowledge of somewhere that is highly attractive. You know, hardly anyone comes to the Antarctic. And if I wanted to come back to the Antarctic, I would come to you. I would come to you because you know how to prepare for the cold, how to dive underneath the ice, how to, you know, the animals, etc., etc. Um, so he was sort of implying, if you do want to get into this, then you know, play to your strengths. So I remember that, and when I came back from that trip... I got offered another job as a base commander this time, back to the Antarctic, no diving. The base was actually on top of a big ice shelf, so there wasn't actually a piece of rock for 120 miles in any direction. But there was, 12 miles to the north, on the sea ice, there was an emperor wintering, emperor penguin colony. So I took a 16mm camera down with me. I took some footage of the emperor penguins. I sold it to the BBC when I went back. And on the strength of that, they gave me my first proper contract at Signy, back where I had done all those winters. Back there for another four months it was. And that was it. When that film, that series then came out, basically half of the first programme was mine because the first half was all about Antarctic birds. And I got that because I'd been on Signy before, but also the producer didn't have the money, didn't have the budget to keep his main cameraman in the Antarctic for four months, which is what he had to do because... The producer wanted shots from early in the season, the dailies coming back all the way around to empty colonies with, you know, skewers feeding on the dead chicks and things like that. And the only way to do that was to be there for the whole summer. So he came to me and he said, you know, I, I can't afford my main camera. Will you accept a very reduced rate? And I thought about it for a minute. And as I say, I could see that being the springboard. So I took it from there. But that was it because when that programme came out, it did nail me as the person to come to for cold things and in a way the Antarctic you know back in those days the Antarctic and the Arctic to a degree it was like having Africa to yourself you know you, you there were all these great stories with animals that you could get close to in the Antarctic and some big sequences just waiting to get picked off so it was like 
you know, going, going to a huge continent where you'd experienced it all, and now you were asked to pick and choose or make suggestions as to what we might film. So very different from today, where there are so many people go to the polls. But it was yeah. I mean, it's, and sorry to cut you off there. I just wanted to, to add in there, I, I find it, I, I think um, listeners find it incredible how much convenience comes into this work in terms of, like you're saying, they couldn't afford to keep a camera person out there. It was more convenient to have you there. They knew you could do it. And yeah. I still find that today. I mean, still find so much of the time. Convenience is a big factor in this. It's, you know, will this work? Can we make it? Can we, can we save money so we, we have a contingency plan if it all goes wrong? Mm -hmm. um, and that's really still such a big part. And also how so many people get into this, this work through either science or very much passion. And mm -hmm. something I really want to pick up with what you said there, Doug, is that, you know, you spoke about how, you know, you were just, you, you thought, wow, this, this would be an incredible career. And just following that path and making it happen yourself by picking mm -hmm. up a camera and saying, you know, I'm going to film this and mm -hmm. see if they want it, you mm -hmm. know, is, in, is incredible. And I have spoken to many people today who, who still do that, you know, who's still out there filming stuff and it gets picked mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, I mean, it, it was, it's still possible to do that. You know, the level of um, sophistication of the equipment that you were expected to, do, to use now, and maybe especially for the, the high-end programs, is pretty remarkable. And the days of almost a small crew are much more limited. It tends to be, you know, you need an assistant, you need a DIT, you might need, well, now that we've gone on to, um, electronic media where everybody where you can shoot it and then look at it it kind of makes a producer or a director in the field more useful than they used to be because there wasn't an awful lot you could do um, if you shot it and then it was going to be a month before you saw it uh, the director had to just trust that you were getting what he or she thought you wanted so it, it was different different ways and yes sometimes people do still get in like that but over here in UK we have a number of there's at least two or I think three universities which offer degrees in wildlife filming and production and you see quite a lot of of now established camera people, I would hesitate to call them new, but they feel new to me. People who whom I, whom I gave a master class to maybe six or seven years ago, I now see them doing, getting steady work as, as, um, as camera people. And also with the sophistication of equipment, there is more opportunity for a genuine assistant now than there used to be. They're just moving the stuff around, as I say, digital downloading at the end of the day. Those are valuable ways in which you can get into the business and end up eventually being given the responsibility to handle a camera yourself. But, you know, I always say to people, if you decide it's what you want to do, give yourself five years, give yourself five years, and by that time, the end of that time, you should be able to look at yourself honestly and say, am I making a living? And if you're good, you'll be making a good living. Um, if you're really st still struggling, so to speak, and the work isn't coming in steadily, then ask yourself what I could do better or decide if it is something that you can practically make a living with.
And you, um, and I think that's great advice, great advice, because these days it seems, you know, the, the equipment now is just available to everyone. I mean, for a couple of grand, you can go out and buy a camera that just films incredible footage. And so exactly. it's not really about the gear anymore, as opposed to the skill of the person using it. And um, uh, some, something you said there, you know, about the transition from, um, you know, film where you didn't get to see the, your footage for maybe months, weeks or months. It was desperate. It was desperate. Right. Well, I, so how, and I know you've spoken on this stuff before, but re really what I, I would like to know is how has that changed your workflow from going from where you were filming to having no idea? I mean, you have an idea because you're, you know, at the time you're filming. But so much of the time I know I'm filming on digital stuff and I think, oh, this is great. I get back and I'm like, how is that slightly out of focus? You know, how did I miss that? Mm. So, you know, it happens. How has that changed your workflow? Well, there's some things. Moving to electronic initially made things easy, easier. But going up to 4K or 6K with big full-size 35mm sensors, that has made things harder. When we were on 16mm um, film and we moved on to chips that were the same sort of size with the same kind of depths of field, then I think electronic became easier, especially underwater. I mean, underwater, imagine you go down, you've got a 10-minute load on your camera, you're looking through a, a pretty dim optical viewfinder, you've got 10 minutes really, then you have to leave whatever you're filming, come back up to the surface, split the lane, split the housing, maybe in a small rocky boat, split the housing, put another mag on, go back down again. Chances of finding what you were on, almost remote. So to move to electronic where we had big, nice monitors, where we could tweak the colours perhaps underwater, where electronic had this way of, of piercing through murky conditions and really giving you a nice bright image. And then go down with an hour's worth of film or an hour's worth of media where... It didn't matter if you hardly got anything in that hour because it was so cheap. That's the other thing to remember about film. Used to film used to cost about about $28 a minute by the time you bought the film, sent it away for processing, and got something back that you could look at. $28 every minute. Now with the latest medium, you can use that you know, CF card as much as you want, again and again and again and again. So that was hugely liberating. But the main thing I, it brought to me was just this ability to improve yourself. You could shoot it in the morning, look at it over you know noon, and then go out and improve on it in the afternoon. It would mean that you could look at it and, and see what you had, see what was good, and then know what you really had to concentrate on to make it better. So that was that was massively valuable. It made the job, I think, more relaxing. But then when we went from small 16mm size chips up to the bigger 35mm, suddenly we lost depth of field. And also we went on to HD and better media, which is just completely unforgiving for any sort of, you know, not holding focus. And it's interesting, what's hard really are big wide angles because that's the hardest thing to focus on. There's, there's very hard to get a big wide angle. And if your lens is just off a little bit or your eye is off a little bit, it's almost impossible reaching, I think, the limit almost of, of the human eye when you consider this even a big viewfinder that you can use. And then it goes on to a 100-inch 
television or even bigger onto the big screen. If that's not pin sharp and well, rock steady, we can do that afterwards. But if that ain't pin sharp, it just shows up a mile. It's really much harder. And in the meantime, we've also got directors shouting about, I want a shallow depth of field. You know, I want the animal to stand out from the background. And you're thinking, well, that's fine if you've got an actor hitting the marks, but you try and follow a, an animal that's away from you towards you, away from you towards you, holding that pin sharp when you've barely got enough depth of field for the animal. Um, no, it's definitely you know, a fresh set of skills in a way that need to do it. Because we, as far as I know, there is no autofocus system on a big movie camera. No, and I know, I know they're coming out with it. I know um, Canon and Sony are both yeah, okay. working now and bringing right. it in. Uh, Sony just released their FX6, which is between the Venice and the FX9, rather, and the, right. the FS7, and it's got that eye tracking, and it's supposed uh -huh. to, you know, it's getting there. And I think, you know, that's going to be incredible for us wildlife filmmakers when that will work <laughs> properly, right? I mean, yeah, I've yeah. tried that. I've tried using it um, on bears at night uh -huh. with a small Sony, the, the mm -hmm. new um, A7S III, uh, a pre-production model. And right. it's incredible when there's good light. But as soon as, you, as, soon as it's dark, that thing just loses yep. focus straight away. And then you've lost your shot. So you're better right. off. Yep. being manual and you know trying to hold it than you are relying on it but mm -hmm. another another great point there is that you know when you when you go back to the days when cameras to me seem to be more ergonomic i mean mm -hmm. then there are a few now that they've brought out it's like shoulder mount yep. ergonomic yeah, yeah, emg yeah. style but mm -hmm. most cameras used to be like that now well, and i i believe you film on a red how, do you just not do shoulder shots anymore? How well, you? Yeah, it's, you know, Red is a lovely camera, but it's a bit like a, what we call a Meccano set, which is where you build it up. Now, I remember, I remember the very Meccano. first time, I remember the first time that I ever picked up a Red, I picked it up by the handle and it fell to one side. And I went across to the Ari stand and picked up their Alexa and it just hung there, perfectly level. And I thought, the Alexa's been designed by camera people. The red, I'm not so sure about. And the red is still kind of catching up there. You, you can get a shoulder mount for it, but you really have to play around with it until you get it the way you want it. And then, of course, it all changes as soon as you put a different lens on the front or things like that. So, yeah, that, that again was was good. When, when video cameras came along and we were on to HD, Betacam, what have you, then an ENG camera, there was no difference in the chassis between a, a Panasonic and a, and a Sony, none whatsoever, because there was evolution had made it perfect. It sat on your shoulder, certain controls were here, other controls were here. And you could just swap from one easy, no problem. Um, but since we went to you know, different um, models, then yes, they're, they're not really designed for hand-holding. And a DSLR either, it's, unless you rig it up with a proper you know, thing. But then those, those systems aren't good for for hand focusing at the front because that knocks them off. They're nice for tracking shots, nice for wide angles, but if you have anything decent, you know, a bit of a long lens on it, and you're having to pull the focus while it's on that gimbal, you know, you can't really. It's almost like you need someone else 
with a focus, with a with a servo and a, and a thing. So it's almost, you know, I, I know some people who've, who've used that underwater. They were filming dolphins and they were so fast coming from distance to close that they actually took an umbilical up to the surface and beamed the, the image up to the top and someone was controlling the focus down the umbilical to the servo motor while the camera person down below just, he kept the framing right and, and that was it. So I don't know whether we'll you know, end up like that with, you know, with, with some wildlife stuff. It might be practical, but, you know, with wildlife, you do have to be, need to be more flexible. You haven't got to work fast. Sure. And so, sorry, and I was just going to bring into that, this whole, this whole piece about how, you know, what, what's really makes wildlife filmmaking so different to so, so much other filmmaking is that you can be filming just general wildlife shots, scenic shots and all of that. That's fine. You can practice, you know, you, you just get it down, got that wrong, try again. But it's the behavioral stuff that you're really after. That's the stuff that makes it mainly in the show. You know, how, how now with, with these, you know, full frame sensors where you are trying to keep pinpoint accuracy and say, I know, you know, you filmed a lot of polar bears and yeah. um, we'll go on to talk about Hostile Planet. I know one of the newer ones you've just done. Mm -hmm. I know in that show, there's some, you know, super close ups, there's big fight scenes and what have you you know, trying to maintain focus when behavior is happening, how, you know, are you able just to get complete sequences that you're happy with? You know, does that take a huge amount of mastery or are you in a place now where you have to build it from lots of different pieces because you just weren't able to keep a tracking shot? Well, I, I think, it, you know, it's not, it's, it's often not there, you know, losing losing half your shots because they're not in focus it's more that you need a range of shots to make a proper sequence you need to be at different angles from the from the animal so a lot of the time you would hope to see the behavior more than once and then match it up likewise and things like that so you can pull together the sequence but a lot of those um shots that you see now are shot from um, what they call a shot over, which is really like a version of the Steadicam. So there is increasingly less focusing done by hand. When you put your camera into one of these shot over systems, everything is operated remotely from a control board and a big screen. And you sit back from the whole thing and you can pan and tilt and move and scan. And with enough practice, you can also hold focus on it. But it's um, it's sort of like a you know it's a different skill. It's like it's like a really good drone operator. Sure. Um, it's almost like the you know it helps if you've cut your teeth on a number of video games before you go. <laughs> right. So you you go. get both thumbs working independently and you know rub your head at the same time. Sure. So there are different physical skills I think that you need. But having said that, I know Martin Colbeck, who's a very good uh, long lens camera person. He has stuck with long lenses on top of a tripod and he finds that he is in demand for that kind of filming because he can set up and go much quicker than the shot over cut uh, you know you're limited by how you can bump around in a boat or zoom around in a land rover or what have you you know it really depends what 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 budget you have if you have the budget you can do most things but it will take you longer and it will be more expensive per day because you're using very sophisticated equipment 
Absolutely. Now, one of the one of the questions I hear a lot with wildlife filmmaking is, you know, we we as the viewer get to see this polished end result, which is always phenomenal with landmark series mm -hmm. that you've, you've shot on. When we talk about percentages, I know I, I heard an interview with you a long time ago saying you spent months in the field, you had all your reels of film you know piling up and you no, didn't get to see them until no. you were sat with a director and editor on the big no, screen and, and then of course you see everything you don't just see the good stuff you see all the good the bad the ugly right yeah. and it can be embarrassing in terms and this is not, a very, often. not very often not very often okay there you go so well in terms of you know now and, and i've kind of asked this question in terms of how things have changed but people say you know they I get a lot of people asking, you know, should, should all of my stuff be really good because I'm struggling, you know, and I'm only getting like 10% really good shots. And, and from my point perspective, that, that to me is pretty normal, right? You, there's only a certain amount that you're, you're yeah. going to get that's going to be perfect shooting. And the yeah. rest is going to be, you know, some learning as you go, depending on the species you're working with. How are you finding that now with the newer cameras, the older cameras, and just in general, what would you say is your percentage of bad stuff? <laughs> very, very small. Every frame, okay, of good, good. every frame of Rembrandt, as we used to say. Um, well, I think, you know, back in, back in filming days, it was very expensive to shoot. So the more you shot, that was just money in the budget. I think it, it started off, the first producer I worked with used to like to shoot on 10 to 1, which is pretty tight shooting ratio. You can't be very ambitious at 10 to 1. And then <laughs> the bigger series came along with elements of behavior in them. And sorry, just to, just so we, we're understanding you, 10 to 1 meaning one, the 10% one, the is going to be in the show kind of thing. Yeah, and the yeah, other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, If you were going to make a one-hour show, or in this case, first film that I proper, another film that I made working with this producer, it was a half-hour film we wanted. So he gave me six hours worth of film or about five hours worth of film and I was expected to half a, half an hour of that would make the film um, but that, and that worked for very simple sort of films but as the standards went up and as the ambitions went up so the shooting ratio went up and the norm then became more like 40 to 50 to 1 when we were still shooting on, on film and you know again you had to rely on a camera person remembering or, or really behaving like an editor. You couldn't just go and shoot anything. You had to keep in mind what, what is going to be the killer shot here. And sometimes you would spend 90% of the time going for 10% of the sequence, you know, and then electronic came along and suddenly that didn't matter. So we then went the other way and you would give, shoot so much stuff. And the thing you've got to remember is that some poor sod's got to look at this for it to have any meaning, someone has to be able to look at the shots and say, this is a good shot, this is not so good, etc. So if they, if you give them masses of stuff, they just don't have time to be that particular, unless you can go through it and kind of give your shots a star rating. And that's what the producers used to do. Before the editor often got hold of it, the producer would go through it and would star rate every shot. But a good editor will tell you, I want to see everything because I can see the half second shots that I need. And, you know, I'm just thinking differently as I go through it. So I think there are some things that <clears throat> you have to shoot lots and lots of 100 to 1, 150 to 1 even, because you're, you're waiting for that special moment uh, and you just need to roll on it. 
we kind of the, the advent of um, what's it called? You know, cash recording has been quite good because with that you can set your camera to record the, the ten seconds before the event. You can see the event, press the trigger, and you know you've got. 10 seconds before then the thing happens, you know, that helps a lot. You don't have the same waiting and anticipating, what have you. Um, sometimes you just shoot everything, but at different shot sizes. You know, you'll zoom in, crash zoom, pick up a close-up, come back, shoot a medium, let it exit. You know, if, if you've only got one chance to do it, then you try to cover it as many ways as you can. And it, it takes a bit of practice and experience to do that instinctively. But the way to do it is to, as I said, teach yourself, find a sequence or a whole program that you like and break it down shot by shot by shot, description of what's happening in that shot. And you will find all the rules that you can read about. You'll see examples of them all and you begin to see when they work. So sometimes you get with a jump cut. While it's very difficult if half of your sequence is filmed with the light behind the subject and suddenly the rest of it is with full on behind the camera. Very hard to cut between those, those two in between. So what you need is some shots that will get you round to the backlight, so to speak. So you, know, you never stop learning. And as I say, I think nowadays, um, I don't know what the average rate is. The shooting ratio is probably about 70 to 80 to 1 for some of those things. But it's probably very imbalanced. Some things that are simpler, you can shoot on less. And some things are easier to cut even though you've got a lot of material. Um, but I would, I would think carefully, you certainly don't want to just shoot and hose the stuff around randomly. You want to be thinking, because you'll have to look at it. <laughs> That's right. Be the editor. Then, you know, think about the three classic shot sizes, give yourself editing points, and don't try, don't start with something really difficult. Start with the simpler stuff and, and build it up. You know, make a sequence of... A horse walking across a field, you know, get the close-ups of the head, the feet, the tail, the exit frame, the entry frame, different shot sizes each of those, make them tiny and wide and make tiny and wide in a big landscape shot, etc. Et get ahead of him and let him come into shot in focus, you know, all these sorts of things that you can try and that will let you make up, you know, a minute's worth of just a horse walking across a field, but it'll yeah. be nice. Well, and, and, and it's a great advice to, you know, if you edit your own material, you yeah. soon, and you learn that you soon understand you need to be editing or storytelling while you're filming. Yep, and I yep. think you're, you're right. We come full circle. We've gone from, you know, 10 to one ratios. We went way up high and now we're coming back. So we realize how much time it takes and post-production is, oh gosh, I mean, it can, it can really take a toll if you've got that much footage to go through and you're just trying to find the shots you need so that's great but now uh, Doug you have you've shot you know pretty much everything there is to shoot um, I know most of the stuff is Antarctica it's polar bears a lot of underwater stuff what would you say out of all the experiences and wildlife you've shot what what's the the, what's the one species that if you were told to go and shoot tomorrow for a month that would be your <laughs> Your species you want to go and film again because that's your perfect species to film. Yeah, well, I think you could never have too much of polar bears. You know, there's they are such a charismatic animal and they live in such a charismatic place. And you can't really film them. You can't film them from a hide because if you can see the polar bear, the polar bear can see you. 
and you stick a hide in the middle of the ice, it's just going to come and look at it. So it's all about body language, how you drive your snow machine. It's not a field craft that you need, I think, to get close to a polar bear. And they don't give up their secrets easily. You know, I've been very lucky in the amount of time that I've spent going for polar bears and the amount of time that I've been given to spend them. I think I, I tallied it up and I've, you know, I've, I've had something like 600 days spread across you know, different seasons to just go and film polar bears. Wow. Sometimes you'll go out for a shoot. You know, there's one shoot I remember where, I think it was for Blue Planet One, and we went out and we had a five-week shoot and really, we got all the material in one six-hour spell. And it was between about 10 at night and 4 in the morning. And even then, what we, the, the crux that we got was, was you know, happened within about 10 minutes. You know? So sometimes you've really got to go for them. But as I say, they're, they're sexy and they're charismatic. And there is this element of danger from them. I mean, they will, you've got to keep your wits about you. On the sea ice. If you don't, you'll get a polar bear up too close for comfort. And then you better keep your wits about you because the last thing you want to do with any animal is to the welfare of the animal comes first. What you don't want to do is have to kill or injure the animal somehow in order that you remain safe. That would be an absolute tragedy. And you know, polar bears will use all the guile they've got to come up close to you. So you better have the snow machines ready or the rubber bullets or the pepper spray or all this sort of stuff. But there's no doubt as well that, that working with the sort of rawness of, of nature in a polar bear and, and the difficulties, just the toughness of the environment makes it, to my mind, sort of the ultimate animal. But on the other hand, if you go underwater, then it's all about, I think, close encounters with mammals or with big animals and mammals mammals are probably my favorite subject because you know you and I are mammals so is our pet dog so is the cow so is you know whales and there's no doubt that all these mammals have got individual personalities they sometimes you know there can be an overriding sort of stereotype personality for that kind of animal but not often you know, you'll find very wary whales, you'll find sort of aggressive whales, you'll find boisterous whales, you'll find curious whales. And so it's all about getting on that same wavelength with the animal so that it will approach you, but not get ultra curious about you. It will let you close, but just carry on with its behavior. You know, that's what's really nice. And I just think it's an enormous privilege to be in the company of a wild animal, having said mammals and things, but actually it could be birds, it could be reptiles, it could be anything. Because, but especially things like polar bears or underwater where you can't hide from them. If that animal doesn't want to be with you, it runs away or it turns, flicks its tail and it's gone. So you can get immense satisfaction from thinking that you have everything that you've done has allowed this completely wild animal to come close to you and do a bit of natural behavior and leave. That is partly due to you. And it's not you being super stealthy or something like that, although sometimes it can come into it. You know, but in the polar zones and underwater, because you can't hide from the animal, there's a lot more kind of comes down to you and the right vibes and the right body language and all these sort of things that that are almost indefinable, but which, if you have them, 
you know, that makes you special. It's like, you know, the great camera people back in the film days, and even now, the great camera people had this instinct when the animal was going to do something, and he would press that button just before it did it. And you can only do that by a sense for the animal and lots and lots of watching of it. And that's experience. Really enjoyable. Experience over anything else. I, my my I advice to people always when, you know, I meet new people wanting to get into the industry as a camera person, mm -hmm. but they don't want to put any time in learning about wildlife. <laughs> and I've worked with crews where they've, someone's been taken on who has no experience yeah, and they've yeah. messed a shoot up because they mm -hmm. made too much noise or rustling yeah, around yeah. when you know yeah. and and i mean it, i think that's why so many people have come from other backgrounds scientific backgrounds mm -hmm. other backgrounds you know i came i ran a while i grew up on a wildlife park and managed mm -hmm. the wildlife park for 15 years before getting into tv and it really? was my wildlife experience that, that brought me into tv and so mm -hmm. And it's understanding that behavior. And as you say, you know, if you jump into the water in front of the whale for the first time ever, you're probably not going to get the best footage and, you know, until you learn something about the animal. Um, Doug, I, I run a, um, a mentoring group and I've got a couple of questions here from some of my members. And actually one of them kind of pertains to this right here. And so this is from Emily Short. And um, she asks, do you re recognize any whales that you've filmed before? So if you're going back to an area, do you ever come across whales? Do you, do you hear or see whales that recognize, um, that you recognize while filming? Well, I, I don't know if I've ever been back to somewhere where it's been maybe a year's gap. I mean, you know, scientists can recognize whales a year apart, but that's not so much from their behavior. It's more from the, the callosities on their back or the pattern of the flukes, etc. But there was certainly, I was lucky enough to do a long shoot in Tonga for um, for Planet Earth, I think it was. Yeah, Planet Earth. And uh, we were there for about nine weeks and we had a phenomenal boatman called Lolly, who was a local Tongan. And Lolly knew the archipelago intimately well, but also he really could handle a boat. And he would you know, he would drive around sometimes slowly, sometimes fast, but he really knew how to approach a whale, take your time and all the rest of it. And there's no doubt that the thing is, the thing is that you can recognize the individual humpbacks. When you see them diving, they throw their tail up. You can see that pattern underneath them. And there was definitely one female who got to know us. She got to know the boat, first of all. We would go to this bay and it wasn't every day she was around there, but if she was, and we just pottered around the bay, because that's the other secret. Don't put the thing in and out of gear, nice steady engine note. And as we pottered around, or just paused and let the engine idle, she would often come over and you could tell it was her because she had some pattern on her nose. And she would sit there, right underneath, close to the boat. And I would quietly slip in, and I would go across, and it was first time we, we saw her, she was good and friendly, but by the second or third time, she was doing a lot more. She was really easy going. And so that was a whale that we were actually able to go and, and look for on those occasions. And sometimes, <coughs> sometimes it can be the same with a polar bear. You know, polar bears often hunt in the same areas for you know, several days at a time, especially in the front of glaciers. The front of glaciers where bits, lumps fall off the glacier, even through the winter. There's lots of cracks and broken ice in that area. So that's where the seals 
hang out, popping up through their breathing holes. So the, the seal, the polar bear knows that, but it also knows that it goes there for maybe another couple of hours, and by that time it's kind of spooked all the whale, uh, the seals. So it pisses off and then comes back the next day at more or less the same time. Now, if you meet that polar bear on a Monday, and you go back there on the Tuesday and the Wednesday, and every day you do things right, and the polar bear sees you, then by Friday, you'll be getting better shots of that polar bear than you got on the Monday because the bear recognised knows you and you've got that feel for the polar bear. It's not that it's become tame or it's just become a little bit habituated and that, that affability, that being at ease with each other, like I say, you'll get better shots at the end of the day and you can recognise individual bears, you know, they they the, the build of them and sometimes scarring on the nose and things like that. You'll know that, hey, this is the same bear that we saw yesterday or things like that. So there's certainly been over the short term, there's been animals that I've recognised and hopefully I like to think that because they had a good experience with you the first time, that'll be, that'll be a head start for the second time. Yeah, I completely uh, agree and understand that. I feel I do a lot of filming with black bears, urban black bears, um, yeah. and I find the exact same thing. Once I find an individual, I'm I keep my distance for the first night or so. Most of the time, it's a night, mm -hmm. and then within a few days, within five or six days, it's so yeah. used to me being part of the environment mm -hmm. that they, you know, they they just they look at me, they see me there, and they just carry on, and you get the behavioural shots of that point of a bear in a in a non you know normal environment for them yeah. but what's becoming an environment for <laughs> that individual. Well that, that was what that was what Lolly said when we when we started out with him and the whales. He said, look, I'll put you in, you'll you know you'll be fairly close to the whales, head out in the direction of the whales, but as soon as you see it, a dim distant shape, just hang off there. Hang off there for 20 minutes, half an hour. Don't push it. The whale knows you're there. The whale can see you as well as it can see you. So if it's happy, it will come to you. But don't push it. Let all the coming be of the whale. And he was dead right. He was yeah. dead right. Yeah, that's incredible. You know, what? one of the most uh, incredible experiences I've had in my life, without doubt, was filming a sardine run off the coast of Durban, South Africa, and mm -hmm. being in amongst you know, hundreds of dolphin, common dolphin, uh, bronze whaler sharks, tuna, you know, gannets coming down. And, and it was uh, a very emotional experience for me. I mean, it just blew my mind to be lucky enough to be there and observe this <laughs> happening. What moments have you had like that where uh, you've almost forgot your filming because you've been so, you know, taken by the emotion of the moment of just being that lucky to be there? Have you had any moments? I'm sure you have. <laughs> If you if you forget to, if you forget to film, you won't last long in the job. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's funny. Sometimes you can't get in the middle of something, and you realise afterwards that you've only really seen it through the viewfinder. You know, you haven't actually had the time to stand back and take in the whole sort of thing. Um, I think one one sequence that really drew me in was when we filmed the killer whales uh, attacking the grey whale, which we did for Blue Planet One. That was lasted about three hours, and it was so emotional and emotionally engaging. But at the same time, we were, you know, filming it almost the whole time, not on the you know trigger and high finger on the trigger, but you know, really looking at it through the whole time. And we did get completely drawn into it. And there was this sort of tension between honestly 
you couldn't help but feel something for the for the whale for the baby whale that was getting separated and then drowned versus the it's override then keep it in focus you know have i got that shot let's do something else like that um so that was a pretty intense experience but um yes there have been i remember um a shoot that i did for it in indonesia not long ago for um for a national geographic program and we, were, we went to this uh, reef and there was a big school of sardines off this reef and there were um mobular rays coming up and hitting them and this school of sardines was so big that when you were perched on top of the reef or on the edge of the reef it would be out there in front of you and then sometimes it would just whoosh towards you and it was passing by you know less than a meter above your head going like hell and that everything just went dark and you just felt that you were really in the middle of this amazing pile of animals and and it's funny because sometimes, you know, if you get in the middle of these bait balls, then you've got to remember there are tuna coming hammering these things from the outside. Right. They can't see you in the middle of that. And and if you get hit by a tuna going full speed, you know, you'll know all about it. So, but it's very exciting, isn't it? There's something, and that's again the beauty of underwater is that things... You can't imagine so much that happening on land, but when you get out on the water, because everything happens that much closer, it's that much more intimate, it's that much more exciting. More intense, yeah, absolutely. And I should add that I was actually hosting at the time, so I had the I didn't have a camera in front of my face, so I was okay. able. I was able yeah. to take it in a bit more, but I, I completely mm. agree. When you've got a camera, it's a different deal. Yeah. You're you're focusing in a different way on That's what's it. happening around you. Mm. Um, is it getting is it getting harder these days? You know, we're going back. You know, from uh, the Living Planet where you were first kind of filming through to now Hostile Planet and new projects you're working on. Is it getting harder and harder to find the unique behaviour to tell new stories? Are you finding <laughs> that you're really telling the same stories just with better gear and you know clearer pictures, or um, you know? Are you always looking for new behavior to try and tell a new story? How's that been affected over the years? I think uh, it is harder to get big new stories. You know, the, the, the bar has been set very high in terms of what the public wants to see. It has to be spectacular. Usually it has to ideally maybe involve mammals. That's be enough. So, but you can tell stories in a different way. Um, you know, sometimes you can go back and visit something that has been done before and the technology will allow you to film it better. Um, other times, it is remarkable how, how much new stuff has come up. I mean, I think one of the classic ones in, in Blue Planet 2 was early on where they had those fish jumping out of the water and grabbing the seabirds in midair. Now, that was actually a sequence that none of the researchers, I don't think, found out about. It was actually discovered when the team were on location trying for something else. Someone said, have you heard about the fish round the corner jumping out? And they hadn't heard about that. But that's quite rare because... At least six months before a big series gets going, at least six months, you have maybe got a team of three researchers just going through YouTube, all the latest scientific papers, etc., trying to come up with new pieces of behaviour and then trying to assess what are the odds of getting that and will it, you know, will it, will it be spectacular enough if we spend all that money on it? And 
as I say, when I went to the Antarctic, or when I started filming in the Antarctic, there was a lot of spectacular stuff that could just be picked off. There's much, much less of it now, and, and, and the public expects, and so does the producer and the commissioner, they expect it to be better filmed. But you know, now we have got that voluptuous images, we've got cameras that look into the shadows the way they didn't before, we've got super slow-mo, at that same very high quality. So sometimes, you know, a sequence does look different on a super big television in 4K than it did, you know, back in the olden days when, uh, you know, when we were shooting on film. Uh, but it is everyone's holy grail is to come up with something new and spectacular. I, I had, you know, I had, I had been luckier than most. That I, you know, Blue Planet One was a big groundbreaker and I was lucky to be on a lot of that. The most recent one, probably the one that, that uh, sticks in my mind mostly, was to with Doug Anderson, uh, another underwater, very good underwater cameraman. And uh, we went down and, and we had the chance to film those orcas washing the wave, washing the seals off the ice floes. And that was that was a very spectacular sequence. And for me it was personally very satisfying because it had been a kind of holy grail. You know, I, I heard of that behaviour, not in much detail, but I heard about something like that way back in 1976 when I was in the Antarctic. We were quite friendly with uh, some Argentinian bases. There was one on the peninsula and they described to us during one radio chat that they had this group of killer whales in a channel and someone had seen them attacking the, the seals on the ice floes. Uh, I don't know if it was wave washing or what have you, but anyway, it was, it was interesting behaviour from orcas. Now, back in those days, orcas were much more rarer, much rarer down the peninsula than they are now. Um, anyway, you know, when we did Life in the Freezer, we looked for that kind of behaviour. We sort of got came close because we could hear orcas and splashing, um, but it was so misty that all we found was a big strip of whale blubber floating on the surface. But that was probably the aftermath of an orca attack. And we looked for it through Blue Planet, didn't see it. And then I did try for it on Life and, and we didn't quite get it. So when Frozen Planet asked me if should we try it again, I was able to say to them, yes, but if we do it this time, let's do it, you know, later in the year when we've got 24-hour daylight, let's do so-and-so, so-and-so. And it all came together for that shoot for Frozen Planet. So that was that was really satisfying. And I can't think of better company to be in with it. You know, it was a fairly small team. of producer, Catherine, was down there, and it was with my old friend Jerome um, who's a, an amazing skipper whom I'd worked with many times in the Antarctic. And, you know, he takes his boat, the boat he had, the Golden Fleece, 60 foot long. He takes that into ice that even icebreakers would have second thoughts about going <laughs> And uh, there isn't a nook or cranny uh, down the peninsula that he hasn't either ventured into or ran aground on. So wow. <laughs> it's just great. You know, it's great to have a, an incredible team that you can trust when, oh, you, when, yeah, when you're out great. filming like that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of the most important things, isn't it? The people around you. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, being um, with the amount of things that you have filmed over the years, how many things have you filmed that have been a first, either a, a first on camera or a scientific first where you've actually, you know, scientists have learned about behavior from the filming. Has that ever happened? I have been lucky to film some things for the first time, you know, in Blue Planet One, we, we filmed um, 
people are there trying to catch belugas in an ice hole. That hadn't been filmed before. In fact, when we filmed it, that was in about 1998. The Inuit who were with us hadn't seen that since the 60s. Um, and I, so that was a, a real first. And then we got the, the grey whales being attacked by the orcas in Monterey Bay. That hadn't been properly filmed before before we did it. Um, when I did the polar bear special, we got some lovely shots of polar bear swimming underwater on a flat calm day with a very approachable polar bear. We got lovely shots of it just paddling and you could see how it just uses its front paws and it was kind of reflected in the in the flat surface up I above remember it. That shot, yeah. Um you know that was lovely. Um and what was the second part of your question? Um, and the second part, that's all right, was, was have you ever um, filmed anything? Yeah, for, science. Yeah, for science, that, that right. science hasn't seen before. Yeah, yeah, well, well two things strike about come to come mind. Um, the first one was going back to the ice flows, the, the wave washing with the ice flows. I don't think anyone had realised before we saw it, and we realised it quite quickly, that the killer whales were very, very particular about what seals they wanted to attack. There was potentially four different kinds of seals on the ice. They could have Weddell seals, crab eater seals, the occasional leopard seal, and sometimes fur seals. The most common type were crab eaters and Weddells. And we watched this, we got on this pond that obviously went into hunting mode. And it, it didn't take really very long before I turned to John, the scientist, and I said, have you noticed that they only seem to be taking weds? And he said, you're right. He said, it's remarkable because what they would do is if there was a crab eater on the middle of an ice floe, they would break up the ice round about it using a different kind of wave, enough that they could get a close look. And if it was a crabby, they would just leave it. There was no point. We never saw one crab eater seal get washed off the ice floe. It was always Weddell seals. And the theory that we had, and it was only a theory, was that um, Weddell seals are are sort of the most, they're quite agile in the water, but they're the least agile of the three other seals. You're least, a killer whale is least likely to get nipped or injured by a Weddell seal in the water. They're also quite big and fat, they're good eating for a Weddell seal. So that was, those were the only reasons why we reckoned that that was why they got targeting. So that was interesting. And the other one was, um, when I was down, I didn't realise at the time, but when I was down for Blue Planet 1 and we were filming uh, penguins, emperor penguins, and they would zoom out of the water um, and jump up onto the top of the ice. And as they zoomed up, they left the trail of bubbles behind them. And the theory was that those bubbles were coming out because this, you know, like the, what they call the Bernoulli effect, which is where something moving fast through the water has got a reduced pressure around about it. So air bubbles that have been trapped under the feathers of the penguin when it first of all dived. When it zooms back to the surface, because of the reduced pressure just next to the animal's fur, then the bubbles come out. So some scientists, some, some hydrodynamic scientists had a look at this and they, they borrowed lots of footage and they worked out from body lengths per second that the penguin was going. Actually it was going faster than they figured it could have been doing. And what they worked out was that when the animal comes up near the surface, it actually fluffs up its feathers a little bit to let more bubbles out. And those bubbles decrease the friction of the penguin going through the water and allow it that extra few miles an hour to jump that little bit wow. higher 
because sometimes they don't know what the ice is like when they jump out. And the worst thing they could do would be to jump and then fall back in the water where maybe a leopard seal will get them. So they, they wrote this paper all about, all about, with some fairly advanced mathematics, but that's, you know, it was all about to do with the viscosity through water. And I, I could tell you, I don't know if you, this is different, so I'll leave a gap in case you want to cut this bit. But the best example of me in science was I was working in the Antarctic and I was working with a guy who was studying the mollusks. And this was before I was into movies. So I was coming back from a dive one day. Gordon wasn't in on that dive. And I noticed all these limpets next to the shore were all piled up in little stacks, you know, six or seven limpets high. So I mentioned this to Gordon and he said, that's interesting. You know, I've been here for two summers and I've never seen anything like that. Why don't we go and have a look? So it was quite late ice that year. There was not where the ice would be melted by that time but we went underneath the ice and sure enough they were all stacked up and when Gordon tapped one of them they all started spawning you know it was obviously so he collected them and found it was male female male female you know and basically he reckoned that they were stacking themselves up because in the calm conditions underneath the ice that was they had to get up off the bottom to mix the eggs and sperm which they wouldn't have to do normally if the waves are swishing them around so anyway he said look you get some pictures of this and I'll 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 do the I'll write a paper. So he wrote the paper. In fact, he wrote a short paper which was published in Nature, which is an extremely prestigious you know, document. And he, he, I was the joint author, so it was called Unique Spawning Behaviour in the Antarctic Limpet. So that was great. Gordon was very chuffed, and I was pleased to get a paper in Nature because I don't think I've got a paper anywhere else. Um, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> But somehow, you're going to have one. Nature's the one to have it. Exactly. <laughs> somehow, there was a Scottish newspaper got hold of this. Now, this is back in about 1977, 78. And it was what you call one of those red top papers, which has got the headlines and things. But on page three, there is a well endowed picture of a well endowed woman with no top on, you know. So that was how they used to sell them in those days. So they somehow got hold of this story about the limpets and things. And they phoned up Gordon and he explained about the circumstances like that. And when the story came out in the newspaper, you had the well-endowed woman on one page and opposite was the headline, Seabed Sex Romps, Six at a Time. <laughs> and you had to read about four or five lines then come before you realised that it was limpets. It was nothing to do with women <laughs> on the other page. But it was all about limpets. And it headed off, I think the first line was something like, Biologists Gordon Prickett and Doug Allen had no idea what they were going to meet during that dive. And as I say, it was only limpets came out later on. So I thought it was a big laugh. Gordon's scientific cred took a bit of a dive at that time, but, but he recovered since then. So that was a kind of you know a contribution to science, but not really in nature and the tabloids at the exactly. same time. Yeah, you don't get many quotes like that. That's fantastic. <laughs> Um, I've got a couple of other questions here for you okay. from, from a couple of members, which um, I, I should ask because these guys really wanted to, to get, these, uh, get some info from Yeah, you. sure. So Alicia Hodson asks, how do you keep up to date with the newest innovative film techniques? And I think you spoke a bit about this already, but yeah. uh, what, and I'll add to this. Do you, um, you know, you've got your gear. Do you keep with the gear that's working for you? Or is it a case that you, you're keeping up with everything coming out? Or do you just wait until someone asks you, hey, we want this. Can you, you know, get up to scratch? Yeah, it's, it's kind of like that. To be honest, I, I'm, I'm not, 
I'm probably not au fait with the very latest stuff. To me, it's always, if I, there are certain bits of kit that I'm not very good at, you know, like the shot over, for example, where, you know, you're twiddling here and you're looking at a screen. And part of the reason that, that appeals to me less, to be honest, is that I've seen so many people use it. And what they do is they sit there with a towel over their head, looking at the viewfinder, the animals over here somewhere, they can see it, but they might as well be a hundred miles away. You know, you film a shot over a cineflex from a helicopter, you often blank out the windows so you can see the image better. So it's not really got that same intimacy as, as, as doing it face to face. Um, so if I'm used, I've asked to use something, like another piece of kit, you know, like a, a Ronin or something like that, then if I have someone who can set it up, then I think what happens is that you know you know the shot that you want and you you know and you go for it. So I've always believed that, that it's the person whose eye is on the viewfinder or the monitor. That's where the creative, that's where you need to put your creativity. And one of the you can have too much. You can you've got to recognize when you need a steady shot and when you need maybe a move. And and if you try to shoot all of them, you end up with a bit of a mess. Um, but if you don't shoot enough of them, then you don't give the variety that it might be needed to. So I think it is a matter of, of master as many of these things as you can. Um, you know, 90% of drone filming is really straightforward. It's a track or you look back or you're straight over the top. But people who are good can come in and they can spin around the person and they can head off. That's not easy. And, and you need to know not only what you're doing physically, but how it's going to how it's going to fit into the film. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. So it's a matter of, of learning that, but then becoming familiar with the tools uh, that you want. And, and it also depends on what you're filming with. You know, if you're filming on a low-budget production, you won't have the time to afford all these bits of kit. And, and maybe you won't have the time to properly deploy them either. So... That's why I'm going back. That's why I like Jake's film. It's, it uses all the tools effectively, but fairly simply. And while he spent a lot of time on location, there's a lot to be learned out of a simple film like that. But then equally, well, I'll go and look at the very latest wildlife stuff from you know one of the big big series and see how they use moving shots and see when it becomes static and look at the close-ups and all this. Yeah. And I think you're so right when you say, you know, you're blanking off and putting a towel over your head and right. hiding in a helicopter that, you know, so many of us got into this because of the experience, because of enjoying being out there in nature, in the wild. And yeah. you suddenly take that away. What have you got? You've got something that's that's more like editing. You're, you're mm -hmm. set in a studio, you know, which yeah. I get into and then I want to get back out and film. So, yeah, it's very interesting. I, yeah, I've got to be careful what I say because, because <laughs> I, I mean, not from, just because, you know, if you're in the, if you've been in the business as long as I have, then you tend to know what you like. And yeah. sometimes everything goes in a, a small direction that you don't quite like. And I'm not sure about it now, but there was a time I felt when the, when the big high end blue chip, as we call them productions, they became so polished that they polished the soul out of it. They polished yeah. the heart out of it. And when they brought in these 10-minute diary pieces at the end, now even they have a tendency to be seen as part of the production. And sometimes the same 
production qualities are brought to them and and we've lost the kind of some of the spontaneity about it yeah. uh, you know it's almost like we're on screen all the time boys let's watch what we say let's make it all work and sometimes you want these to be on the shoulder rough something thrown over your head. that's why i like that's why i like shooting ob doc people I think if I had two favourite genres, it would be wildlife, long lens wildlife, underwater wildlife, and obdoc people. Because obdoc people is, is kind of like wildlife, but it's with sound attached to it. So you're listening all the time. And it's often what you hear that determines where you point the camera from. And you've got to get all the cutaways, you know, the people listening in the hands room and all that sort of stuff. So I really like that as a, and often with that too, you can get in there with a wide angle lens you can feel that you're part of it so it's almost more like underwater topside you know where you're right in amongst it and it's all happening so well, i think there's a lot to be learned from that genre too and i enjoy that i think i yeah i love that and i, I think there's a place for so many of these genres because it's so entertaining you know i mean it's exactly. so fantastic watching the landmark blue yeah. chip series and yeah. seeing the behavior mm -hmm. but then going behind the scenes and now there are entire series devoted to behind the scenes yeah. And those seem to be a little more off the cuff because there's more material needed. You can yeah. tell when someone's turning to camera and doing a piece to camera as opposed to mm -hmm. a reaction. Um, mm -hmm. And I feel like, you know, that, that's becoming so popular because people are so interested as to Absolutely. Yeah. people. And of course, you know, you, um, you were involved in, you, you became a host as well as a cameraman for Ocean Giants. Was that the first? First time you became you were on. Uh, yeah, I suppose that was Ocean Giants was the first time that I, you know, shared the presenting with Didier, the, the French cameraman. Before that, you know, I did do I did pop up on quite a number of these uh, diary pieces at the end, and some of those were completely self-directed. You know, you go out there and they don't really tell you what they want. You just rely on you to bring back something unique. So I did two or three of them, and and I I know I enjoyed it. And, and that was possibly what led to to, um, to Ocean Giants and, and presenting it in that form. I mean, I don't think I could ever, you know, present something formally in the way that David does. But it's quite nice to, you know, to, to be able to to be confident on camera and to be confident that you can say something that, that people are going to find interesting. Yeah, they're very different beasts. Doing a being yeah. a presenter and hosting something that yeah, yeah. you're not necessarily doing, and yet and then being in the moment. And, and those in the moments uh, moments are incredible because we want to see how you, you know, how close yeah. you were to that polar bear mm -hmm. and, and how you weren't eaten, <laughs> you know, when you were getting those shots. So, um, I have another. I have the last question from well, one of my members, and that's Mark Thompson. He asks, mm -hmm. "How do you balance taking stills and videography? Is there any?" Um, you know, preference. I mean, obviously, if you're doing a film, I'm sure filming is prefer preferential. Are you yeah. taking stills these days, or do you have a separate stills person? Well, I, I try to, but you know, that's another thing that that um, has got tightened down on. It used to be that we had a, a gentleman's agreement, so to speak, that when you were on on a shoot, you would try to get some stills. Uh, and, and they would become available for publicity in the film. Basically, they stage your copyright. Now, the commissioners want you to sign up to give them copyright in every image that you ever take. And it, it's, 
you know, it's kind of become, you know how if you go on a feature film set, they take away your mobile phone when you get there because they don't want anything. It's just a secret, etc. But it's kind of like that, in, you know, filming-wise now. They, they, they want to retain all the rights and all the images. I personally think that's a bit unfair. I think if they're going to do that, they should find some extra money in the budget or give you some extra time to, to get these important shots. On the other hand, nowadays, shooting with the big cameras, you can frame grab much more easily for the wildlife. But, you know, when I started in the Antarctic with stills, I was interested in the wildlife, but I was just as interested in getting the shots of, of base life, what base looked like, what we used to do, piss up on Saturday night, you know, cutting snow to get fresh water, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I've always, even when I've been on shoots, uh, I've always been getting behind the scenes stills. And actually for what I do now, which is quite a lot of public presentations, um, and I have the okay, the permission to use the clips, those behind the scenes pictures are, they make up the bulk of, of what I then lead into showing the sequence that everyone knows so well. But because I've got the stills from behind the scenes, I can make the behind the scenes story much better. And I know that there are so many people that say, I, you know, that 10 minutes at the end, that's the bit I like most of all in the film. It's amazing how many people say that. I've heard the same thing, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but I, I think, you know, again, when, we, when they started off with them, they, they somehow had a bit more edge on them. You know how they came about? I think this is true because I was involved with it. When we were doing Blue Planet, when we started off, the idea was to do 50-minute programmes uh, because that was the standard length. It was they had a 50-minute slot on the BBC. And, and with almost all the filming done and most of the budget used up, the BBC turned around and said, oh, by the way, we want these to be 60s because 60 is our new slot. So Alistair said, well we need more money, we need more time because I can't just conjure up an extra 10 minutes of film on each film. And they said, no, you, we haven't got any more money on the things. So we had been shooting some behind the scenes uh, stuff, which we were going to go out as, as PR, little things for the, for the journalistic whole. And somebody had the idea, look, why don't we make those into 10 minute films? And that'll be a one hour package that we offer the BBC. It makes the editing slightly easier because if you take a one hour show on the BBC with no ad breaks and you want to show that on American television, you have to lose about 12 minutes out of it anyway. So if you start with a 50, you've only got to lose two minutes. So it kind of made sense. We made a one-hour package, which was 50 minutes blue chips and 10 minutes making of. And they were so popular that they just became staple for everything since. It's amazing how many things end up working like that, isn't it? Yeah. How, you know, what's almost a mistake or yeah. an extra ends mm -hmm. up being that popular. Yeah. Um, you know, it, uh, I, I could go on. I have so many questions here for you, Doug, but I know, you know, I don't want to take all of your time up. Um, if you had to sum up as a camera person for all of these people listening who are looking, who are either camera people already or they're mm -hmm. looking to get into it more seriously and you've given some advice on this already, but what would be one piece of advice to say, look, if you're really serious about this, you know, take heed to this, what, what would that be? Well, you need to be persistent and, and passionate is an overused word. Um, but you do need to be persistent and tenacious. Uh, you need to be very active. You have to be prepared to 
push yourself out there to make the contacts, to go to wildlife film festivals, wherever they may be. The big one in America is Jackson Hole and Missoula. Missoula is every year, Jackson Hole is every two years. The big one in UK is um, Wild Screen, which alternates every two years with Jackson Hole. Try to, to get to those places. They, they use volunteers, uh, so try to get on working for them as a volunteer. What you want to, you know, think seriously about your showreel, your CV, try and get that in front of the kind of people who will who will eventually employ you. But also, you know, be prepared to work. Try and seek experience anywhere where any part of filming is being done. I've often said that the best training you can get as a camera person is to sit down with an editor. And if they're, if they're willing, they will tell you why they like that shot and why they don't like that shot. Because the best training you can have as a camera person is to learn to think like an editor. The producer almost comes second. <laughs> you know, the editor, the editor will have had the, had the feel from the producer. The producer will talk to you about style, but a lot of that style will come from how it gets cut. So you need to, to give them that sort of thing. Um, but as I say, you have to be passionate because there are downsides. If you are a dedicated, successful wildlife filmmaker or indeed documentary cameraman or whatever, you will find yourself away from home for 68 months a year. And it won't be the sheer time that you're away which will put, maybe put strains on your relationship. It will partly be the unpredictability of it. I don't know a single year where I've started it and been able to say, okay, I've got work two weeks, then I'll have a week off, then through nothing like that. Shoots get extended because things don't go so well and they get you need to spend extra. They get cancelled completely at very little notice. And there's very little in the way of kill fees that you can get. They get cancelled and that's it. People say, oh, don't worry, we'll find you other work later on. But that can't conjure up the two weeks that you just planned to film. You know, you're left with that two-week gap. On the other hand, as I say, you'll be called away early. You thought you had a two-week gap and suddenly they want you a week early. So you will have to spend times away from your family. And that means, you know, if you're married away from your partner or your kids or something like that, sometimes you can make it work. Sometimes some people go and live in a country with their kids, things like that. But most people are off filming. So... It does have its, it does have its, you know, it does have its downsides. Put it that way. But you will know as you as you make your way through it. You will know whether the downsides are outweighing the top sides. Uh, and and hopefully, if you have the sort of life that I have, and that many camera men, camera people have, you will uh, decide that the the sheer privilege of getting into the wilderness and being allowed to spend time with these animals is truly wonderful and that's what you really want to do and you want to make it even more wonderful by bringing back images which will make a difference to the people who are watching them. And I think it's worth saying at this point that you know I think there's this uh, kind of myth, myth or misunderstanding that camera people are kind of employed by like the BBC. There are these full-time employees. I think the majority of camera people in the wildlife industry are all freelance. Would that, would you say that's the case? Yeah, I think so. There are, there's, there's certainly nothing like when I started, the BBC had, had I think three staff 
wildlife camera people. So they were on staff, they were guaranteed their salary, they got some overtime when they were working with pension, all that sort of stuff. That's that's all gone. Um and I think there are there are certainly tax issues in UK. If you want to define yourself as a freelance, then you have to show that your income source is coming from more than one employer. And uh, so I think some sometimes camera people, if you're good, uh, then sometimes a you know, big series comes along and sometimes the same people, you know, the makers of that program want to just employ you and, and they almost want to hold you. If you're really good, they don't want you going out and working for other people. Uh, but there's, there, there are, I can think of one or two who are that good and I don't know how they work their tax. Um, but most people, yes, even they are freelance. For example, if, if you know, you break a leg or something, you have an accident, then most production companies will get you home. But then after that, it's up to you. They will not cover your period of recovery and they will not cover any long-term uh, injury, perhaps, which might make it impossible to carry out your job. You know, I, so, I, I'm very familiar with this. I broke my leg two years ago after being hit by an elk. <laughs> really? Uh-huh. Yeah, have and, you fully uh, recovered? I have. Yeah, I have. A, I have a nice yeah. uh, titanium lower part of my yeah. life now. Yeah, yeah. but, uh, but it, yeah. it's difficult to get insurance for that. You can get insurance for you can get insurance for all kinds of stuff. You know, people will laugh and say, "Oh, I want insurance for you know being bitten by a shark." Oh, that's <laughs> right. No problem. Then you say, "What are you going to do?" Well, I'm going to film sharks, and suddenly it's, oh, the premium goes <laughs> zooming up. Right. You know, right. Kind of yeah. yeah. Oh, so dear. I, it, it's, you know, I, I found it a fascinating life and I've enjoyed the filming and the writing and doing bits for radio and presenting and old doc and all this sort of stuff. I, I have enjoyed mixing it up, so to speak. It's been one of the great, um, it's kind of kept it alive for me. I've enjoyed working in different fields, different genres. So we'll have to come back because I haven't spoken to you at all about freelance writing or, or stuff like that. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> yeah, we should do another episode because I, I tell you, I mean, we could do 10 episodes with all the stuff I want to ask, but but also, yeah, there's a limit to how much people are going to stay on one episode yeah. so and how much time I've, you've got to, to be here. So um, no, I would love to come back, back and, and do another episode at some point without a doubt. No, fine. It's been good talking to you too, Jake. And uh, I look forward to listening to myself in an edited form. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Well, Doug, let's just um, let people know a couple of things. One, you have a book, Freeze Frame. Uh, can you tell us that? Look at that. There it is. <laughs> Fantastic. It just so happens I have a copy to hand. That's, that's <laughs> great. So where I know it's on your website. Is is that the only place it can be found, or can it be found uh, to buy all over the place? No, it's pretty much the. You know, I, I self-published the book, and <clears throat> I find if I, to be honest, I find if I go to booksellers and things, they want such a cut off the top that I'm left with nothing. So I, I I've got plenty of copies here. So you can either go into my website dougallen.com and you can order it through there or I'm quite happy for you Jake to, to put my full web address on and the advantage if you write to me direct is that um, I'll be happy to put a personal message on it and sign it with what have you and things like that so we do all that and then you just transfer and the cost is £25 plus postage 
So I must admit, it is, you know, it gets expensive if I'm shipping it to the States. But, um, you know, I can do anywhere, basically. But if you write to me, then I'll give you a breakdown of costs, how you can pay me and all the rest of it. And I guess if people, I don't know when you're sending us out, but um, I'm taking a few orders for Christmas. But yes, yeah, definitely come to me for it. Fantastic. No, that sounds great. And this should go out just before Christmas. I'm not sure there'll be time to get them in time for Christmas, no. but um, but that's great. And what we'll, I'll do, Doug, is on the um, on our podcast web page, mm-hmm. I will put the link to your website, the link to the book, and really any other links. Where else can people find you? Do you have social media accounts where people can follow you? Yeah, well, you know, I, I Twitter occasionally, but I've got to say that, that I find if you have too many channels of communication then you spend all your time chasing them which is why you know i'm quite happy for people to write to me direct if they really want you know some information or stuff like that i'll occasionally put stuff on facetime um uh, but uh, and i'll twitter out about my thoughts and things but i'm afraid i'm i'm not I'm not a, a great social media communicator, to be honest, compared to some people. You wouldn't find me as an influencer, I don't think. Right. I, I'm the same way. I'm the same way. I struggle to keep up with it. And, exactly. you know, it's one of those things, if you if you go down that road of, of trying to keep up, then when you're out filming, then you, you, you're you supposed to be doing all that stuff as well. And it just gets impossible, but uh, impossible for me and, and yeah. you. So, <laughs> so we'll leave that to the people who do that well. Doug, thank you so much. Sure. It's been a complete privilege let's call this part one because i'd love to <laughs> chat with you again and um and go through so many of the other questions i had here um but it's yeah, been- yeah. well as i say I'm, I'm a great believer in in variety being the spice of life <clears throat> so we can talk about writing books and radio and what to do with your stills pictures and all that sort of stuff it's all these income strands that as a freelance you ideally want to be you know taking advantage of or trying to get into well, fantastic. That will be great. So part two coming up. There we go. Thank you so much, Doug. Very much appreciate it. My pleasure to talk to you. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast, then please leave a rating and a comment. And remember to subscribe to keep up to date with the series future episodes. You can find out more information about wildlife filming at jakewillers.com. And if you're interested in starting a career in the wildlife filmmaking industry or being mentored to further your career, then please visit jakewillers.com forward slash mentorship. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.